Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, welcome back to many familiar faces. Uh, but if you are new here for the first time, a special welcome to you for coming over here. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and happy to host a wonderful series of faculty new book events. So whenever the faculty, any member of our faculty comes out with a new book, I try to snare them and say, would you be interested in having a conversation around your book here at the center? And almost always, not always, but almost always, the uh, author of the book is, is happy to have an event uh, here in the center. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted it's so crowded. I'm sorry it's so crowded. Uh, we have one empty chair here. If somebody who's not sitting would like to sit, first one who gets here gets the chair. Um, and as, as some exemplary people have done, you can sit on the rug. We vacuum it every day. So don't be shy about sitting comfortably. Seriously, if, if anyone would like to sit here, you're welcome to if you're tired of standing. So the format of these events over the years, and this is the sixth one and final one for this year, is basically to have an occasion for the author to talk about his or her work, and not simply a table of contents, but why did you write this book? How did you come to write it? What were the challenges and struggles along the way that made it difficult to get done? Uh, what did you think you accomplished by this book? What did you hope to accomplish by the book? Sort of getting inside not only the covers of the book, but the mind of the author, the mind and heart of the author and the event. And then the, the uh, author of the book invites two or three discussants to reflect on the book and open it up for our conversation. So it's clear that the our understanding is that the uh, respondents are not meant to do book reports either. They're not meant to cover the book entirely, uh, but rather to respond to it in some way and engage it in a serious fashion as the book deserves. And then the author uh, has a chance briefly to respond to the respondents, and then we open it up for general discussion. And usually at that point when we open it for general discussion, we ask the four uh, speaker and panelists to put their chairs facing out and then all can join in the conversation. And then we usually stop about 7 or 7.05, and then still can share refreshments and so on before anyone has to take off. So that's our procedure tonight. And I do feel embarrassed now introducing Harvey Cox, who needs no introduction. And some of you have known him since the 1960s, at least. So mm -hmm. others could get up and introduce him far better than me. But let me do my little job here. Uh, so Harvey Cox is Hollis Research Professor of Divinity here at Harvard, where he began teaching in 1965, both at Harvard Divinity School and in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Harvey is an American Baptist minister. He was Protestant chaplain at Temple University and director of religious activities at Oberlin College. Uh, he was also an ecumenical fraternal worker in Berlin he was for a time a professor at Andover Newton School of Theology over in Newton. His research and teaching interests, as you know, are extremely generous and wide, focusing on the interaction of religion, culture, and politics. Among the many issues he has explored over a long writing career include urbanization, theological developments in world Christianity, Jewish-Christian relations, and current spiritual movements in global setting, particularly Pentecostalism, and the market as God. His first book, I believe it was his first, maybe it was his second, The Secular City, published in 1965. Obviously, it was a, a most well-known book, an international bestseller, 
and was right from the start recommended and seen as a landmark book changing how we think about religion in America, getting it clear, and then also Harvey having the good sense and humility years later to critique his own work. And so it was a monumental work. Other books include The Future of Faith, When Jesus Came to Harvard, Making Moral Decisions Today, The Feast of Fools, The Seduction of the Spirit, Religion in the Secular City. I could go on and on. His more recent books, How to Read the Bible, 2015, and Lamentation and Song of Songs, a theological commentary in the Bible, co-authored with, uh, or two authors under one cover with Stephanie Paulsell, one of our respondents tonight. I could stop there, but I can't bear not to, um, I waved this at Harvey a few months ago, the Nation magazine from back in, um, I think it was in January, had a piece uh, marking the fact that two recent books of, of Harvey came out, uh, The Market is God and also the Harvey Cox Reader. And this author, who I recommend this piece, has a very fetching young picture of Harvey <laughs> <laughs> here also. Um, Elizabeth Brennick talks about the, the lack in American culture today of religious political intellectuals, religious intellectuals in society at large, uh, the loss of voice in the contemporary age of figures who can speak to a wide conversation, can capture the public attention, and the need for such figures. And then with that background not being too subtle, she turns to talk about Harvey Cox and his incredibly long and diverse and committed career. And I'll just read you several sections of it to give a feel for it. Um, Without a unified Christian left to contrast against a powerful and already unified Christian right, there has been no obvious political program or donor program for an incipient generation of young left Christian activists and intellectuals. Young Christians committed to social and economic justice have to carve out their own lineage and propose their own goals and priorities. On the right, that work has already been done for them. It's in the face of these challenges for a new generation of Christian liberals and leftists that Harvey Cox, Baptist minister, Harvard Divinity professor for 50 years and more, offers a beacon of light. Writing well into his 80s, Cox has authored so many books and so on like that, he has served as a model for several generations of Christian activists and intellectuals, reminding Christians and the left that their programs are not as distinct as they're often thought today. In his own life, she says in another point, Cox has practiced what he preached. He embraced a life of activism, has embraced a life of activism and argument, marching for civil rights in the 60s. He's an advocate of ecumenism. He has won praise and friendship from Christian writers across the spectrum left and right, respecting and admiring the work of Cox. And then toward the end, and I'll just read one more passage because we have a lot to do tonight. Um, she talks about this book, uh, Market as God, and Harvey's struggle with some of the burning issues about the economy, business, capitalism in our age. And she says, well, even if Cox doesn't leave us with a clear, simple intellectual program or organizational strategy that will guide us into the future, who could do that? by highlighting the limits of our economic and religious lives, by reminding us of our powers to renovate our current world, Cox clears the space for a new generation of Christians to begin to develop a more public and egalitarian politics. For that alone is more than enough to be grateful for. And we are grateful to hear Harvey Cox tonight. Well, welcome everyone again to the 
freshly vacuumed <laughs> Center for the Study of World Religions. So happy you're all here on this gorgeous afternoon. It gives me, first of all, a chance to thank my colleague, Francis Xavier Clooney, who is now leaving after several years of wonderful leadership of this very institution, which when I first came here a few years ago to Harvard <laughs> was pretty peripheral and is uh, due in some measure to his work very central to the life not only of the Divinity School but of the entire university. We live in a world of diverse world religions and he makes us aware of that and uh, does it in a way which entices and pulls us all into the same conversation. Uh, Francis uh, told me that the format here is after his introduction, but gee, I wish you'd just go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am supposed to talk a little bit about why this book was written, how it was written, any difficulties that I incurred in writing it, what the book's about, what I hope it will accomplish, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I also went at some point in my talk, but not just now, to express appreciation to Rebecca Henderson and Brian Hare and Stephanie Paulsell who are gonna respond. I thought I'd wait until after they responded to see how warm my appreciation <laughs> would be. But at a certain moment in what I'm gonna say now, I will uh, suggest why I think they are, are singularly appropriate in their own way to be respondents to this. Here's what happened. Uh, about 15 years ago, a friend said to me one time, Harvey, if you, know, if you really want to know what's going on in the real world, suggesting that I live in worlds that are not real worlds, <coughs> you should not bother with the front page of the New York Times. You should read the business page first, even before you look at the sports page. Read the business page. You should read the Wall Street Journal. You should look at Forbes magazine. You should read uh, uh, other business publications because then you know what's really happening and you can go on from there. Now, and some people might say that sounds just a shade Marxist, mm -hmm. like economic determinism, but knowing this friend, believe me, it was not Marxist. <laughs> I think he had his finger on. So I, I, first, I started doing it, feeling a little frightened by the prospect. Uh, wouldn't this all seem like very, very strange territory that I was moving into? Strange vocabulary, words I didn't understand, concepts that were beyond my reach, or as they say now, beyond my pay scale. <laughs> that didn't happen, <coughs> oddly enough, or interestingly enough, as I began to read some of the above mentioned publications, I began to see very familiar themes and sub-themes and narratives emerging. Here was a whole worldview, often implicit, but sometimes explicit, a whole worldview being spun out with an understanding of what, is, what history is about, what human beings should be doing, why we go wrong, how we can be set right. It was, it was beginning to look like a worldview. In fact, it was beginning to look like a sort of a religion with its own doctrines its own doctrinal battles, its own heretics, <laughs> those who are sort of read out of the camp who are not part of mainline <laughs> economics, and so they're, they're, they're sent elsewhere and are not published in the, in the major publications. Time after time as I picked these things up, or I should say an, an eschatology, all the theological students here know what that means, where we are going, 
where history is headed and how we should make a contribution uh, to or be part of that whole overall picture. <coughs> it's all there. <clears throat> At least I saw it there. Now, that may well be the case of the guy who has a hammer in his hand and everything looks like a nail. I understand that. After all these years of malformation as a theologian, perhaps I saw theology wherever I looked, in cookbooks or anywhere else. <laughs> but no, oh no, I really think it's there. And then I picked up Michael Sandel's wonderful book. Uh, I think he calls it Everything, uh, What's Not for Sale, or what's a title served like that, where he makes the case that we used to live in a, uh, with, a, with a, a, a market economy. We have now moved into what he called a market society, in which everything is, is marketable. And I thought, yeah, why stop there, Michael? Why not a market culture? and a market religion, and a market worldview, where everything, everything is marketable, where nothing escapes the, the reach uh, of the market. So I started thinking about it in those terms. In fact, I sat down and wrote an article for uh, the Atlantic magazine, which was published in the Atlantic, called The Market as God. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, it was rather widely read, commented on, fiercely attacked by some people, which all writers love. There's nothing better than being attacked, and being a little, uh, the subject of a little controversy. And then I kind of forgot about it for a few years. I was teaching other things. And Francis, the, the Pope Francis was the selected Pope in 2013. And I heard right away from friends of mine at the Gregorian University in Rome that one of the first things he was planning was an encyclical on economic injustice, global economic injustice. I remembered my, uh, my article. I quickly shipped it off to my friend at the Gregorian and said, maybe you could throw this into the mix of things they're reading and looking at as they prepare this encyclical. Well, uh, then uh, he said, thank you, but you never know. Uh, uh, you never know what you're going to say when you suggest something to Rome, right? <laughs> 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 it's all in the answer. <laughs> 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 So uh, I sort of forgot about that until the encyclical emerged in 2013. It's called Evangelii uh, Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. And in the joy of the gospel, the very opening paragraph, which I'm going to quote for you, this is, this is quoting Francis and not myself, reads as follows. We are, we are, uh, we, we have created new idols. The worship of the ancient golden calf has returned. The idolatry of money. In this system, whatever is fragile, like the environment, is defenseless before the interests of a, listen carefully, interests of a deified market. I said, deified market? <laughs> Like the market is God, right? The market has God. This either means that I agree with the Pope or the Pope agrees with me. <laughs> At least we're on the same page. And it's always good, I think Brian will understand this, good to be on the same page uh, with the Pope. So uh, I thought, okay, this seems uh, 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 significant. And I went on to expand this book 
this article. I, I have to say at the request of a very fine editor from uh, Harvard University Press who made this suggestion into a book, and this is the book. I had my doubts, I should say, about whether uh, you can extend a metaphor that, that long. This is, this is a, really kind of a kind of a metaphor. But as I was writing the book and seeing all the, the phenomenal similarities between a religious system and the market system, market consumer capitalist system, I thought this is not a metaphor. This is a real description. We're talking about worldviews that are in fact worldviews in conflict with a certain amount of overlap here and there. That the market, uh, capital, I, I capitalize it in this book, uh, market to signify it's the reverential aura that surrounds the market and a lot of the material I was reading. Uh, the market knows best. The market may seem uncertain today, as they say in the Wall Street Journal, shaky, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, and eventually the market will, uh, will turn, out, turn everything out okay for all of us. The market has a kind of wisdom, uh, a kind of uh, omniscience, mm -hmm. to use a theological term, uh, that uh, we have to respect. So I started uh, uh, thinking of this as a religious system, fully religious system, with the market, capital M, uh, sort of at the pinnacle. Uh, and uh, uh, that's the thesis of the book. Now, I hope that doesn't give it all away. You don't go out and buy a copy. There are, there are a few other things in there. However, the thesis of the book is indeed we do live in a society in which the market has largely displaced traditional religions, the market, capital M, or called marketism or the market mentality has replaced many of the traditional religions as the principal creator of values, the, 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 the principal creator of, of, of uh, lifestyles, ways of living your life, the worthwhile goals in life uh, for you, where history is going, what's wrong with it, how can it be put right, all of those things that I just mentioned are there. And they're there not only implicitly, but also sometimes quite explicitly. So uh, I did uh, uh, finally uh, uh, finish this book last year. And it was published last <coughs> fall by Harvard University Press. And is now available in a paperback edition. Uh, and the, the, <coughs> the book was pretty widely sold and distributed. And I uh, got a chance to talk about it with economists and people in business. Had a wonderful meeting at a suburban church down in Connecticut with a whole group of men around a, all men they were, around a, a table uh, who were in the uh, finance business, financial business in New York. And I, they were surprisingly interested. I thought they'd be truculent <laughs> and, and, uh, and kind of uh, squirmish, but I, no, they were very interested in the issues I was raising. So that was, that was uh, uh, encouraging to me. So I continue to hope that the book will, will meet, will, will do this. It will help create the kind of conversation between people whose specialty is religion, theology, ethics on the one hand, and business, economics, economic theory, investment, marketing, and on the other. Because uh, these two realms have not been that closely in touch. Uh, 
This is why I'm so glad that Rebecca Henderson is here from the business school, our far outlying branch of the university on the other side of the river. It's even farther away than the Kennedy School. You have to cross the river to get over to the business school. She found her way over here, and Rebecca and I have done some things together uh, and, and, uh, on this whole subject. And she teaches a course at the uh, uh, business school called Reimagining Capitalism, wildly popular and very widely uh, supported course there with students who are in the business school but interested in going beyond the received parameters of the current capitalist system. And I've had some of them in my, the I gave a class for two years while I was writing this book called God and Money. And some students from the business school found their way over, over the bridge, through the parking lots, <laughs> <laughs> over to the Divinity School, looked around and actually found the room where we were meeting. And they made a, a uh, really wonderful contribution, I have to say, I, I'm, and I'm grateful that they came. Now, uh, people have said to me, now wait a minute, okay. A metaphor this may be, but you, don't, you can't be serious. You're not really talking about a real religion, are you? And my answer is, well, yes, <laughs> I am. And I'm gonna quote one other thing here. Again, you notice I'm not quoting myself when I quote this book. This is from perhaps the most eminent uh, anthropologist in the entire field, Clifford Geertz, Clifford Geertz who uh, wrote an essay once, uh, a, a, it's a, a classical essay on religion, trying to define this very elusive term. If you've been in the field as long as I, know, I have been, you know that it's terribly difficult. People will say, what do you mean by that? There are so many different kinds of religion, expressions of religion. So here's, what, here's how Clif Clifford Geertz boils it down. He says, now if you've been dozing so far, please listen to this one <laughs> This is the whole point. A religion is a system of symbols which relate to the establishment of establishing of powerful, pervasive, and long-lasting mood and, and, and motivation, uh, formulating, uh, <coughs> formulating con uh, conceptions of a general order of existence and clothing these with, con with, the cons with the conceptions uh, with an era of factuality, uh, in the minds and moods of a, uh, in a uniquely realistic way. Uh, now, my, my vision is not so good at that range, so I, I think you got all of that. In other words, I am relying here on a, an accepted functional definition of what religion is, so we can avoid a, an explicitly theological definition. I long certainly said, well, religions have to have a god, and then you mentioned a whole range of Buddhist possible God. But this, this one I think does it. It covers, it covers religion very well. However, when I was writing the book, I was concerned mainly about Christianity and about the uncanny similarities that I kept noticing between the, uh, the religion, let's call it the religion of business with the market God at its apex and, and Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition. I just want to 
name a couple of them before I uh, quickly conclude here. Uh, uh, let's see, here, here it goes. We have, uh, the, uh, there's a chapter devoted to each of these in the book, by the way. There, the missionary impulse, spread the good word all around the world from pole to pole. This is what the market uh, gods, uh, apostles, love to do. Is there, is there this remotest village anywhere in the Andes which is not reached by one of the marketers of the market god? If it, if it is, tell somebody, because they'll be there next week uh, with, with the message of the market. What about, uh, uh, the, what about the eschatology? Of course, for the market god, ever, ever all growth. Growth is the underlying uh, uh, motif, the elan. And this causes considerable difficulties when you contrast it, say, with Christianity, or even when you contrast it with the fact that can you have a worldview that is based on endless growth mm -hmm. on a finite planet. <laughs> One wonders about that. And the way in which the traditional religions have often emphasized, among other things, our finitude, our mortality, and not the endless possibilities of growth. Uh, now, one of, the, one of the chapters that I really enjoyed reading, and if you want to just dip into it, this is a possibility, the, 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 uh, uh, the market god, market religion, has its own liturgical year. Yeah. <laughs> Every respectable religion should have a liturgical year, and so the market god has it. Uh, it either invents its own holidays, like Black Friday, <laughs> there is a festival, if you ever wanted to see one. Uh, uh, or Mother's Day. I loved reading the history of Mother's Day because Mother's Day began uh, in the home of a Methodist church woman in Kentucky back in the 19th century uh, after the Civil War to bring together veterans of the uh, South and the North as a peacemaking uh, holiday. Mother's Day, Mother's for Peace Day, she called it. However, a certain Mr. Gimbel of the <coughs> department store uh, uh, fame heard about Mother's Day and, it was, and immediately began to sponsor Mother's Day uh, events and Mother's Day sales at his uh, store in Philadelphia uh, at, at Gimbel's. And it went from there. In fact, it got to be so commercialized after its humble start in a Methodist church home that the woman who invented it <coughs> uh, Tried to get, try to, uh, to enact legislation or at least go to the courts and force them to stop calling it Mother's Day. And she expended all of her energy and money unsuccessfully, so you have Mother's Day today. You have a liturgical year. Okay, I'm coming to the end here. And I want to go back to uh, Pope Francis uh, and uh, mention that. Uh, I, I wanted Pope Francis to read this book. And so I, I asked my friend in the Gregorian to make sure he got a copy. And the next time I was in, Ro I was in Rome, I was going to uh, try to see him again. So he wrote back and said, yes, I've delivered a copy to, to His Holiness. And I've set up an audience for you. Now, that was last November. I said, boy, oh boy, at long last, I'm going to get a word of appreciation from the Pope for these wonderful ideas that I, I gave I, I, Right? No. I had the great honor of meeting the Pope. 
I was very impressed with Pope Francis, I have to say. Wonderfully centered and marvelous person, and I, I'm an I'm uh, un, unabashed admirer of what he's doing in the whole field of religion. But he didn't really uh, uh, give me any, uh, he, he didn't express any appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe popes don't do that very much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, so I came away from that um, hoping that if I didn't get that much appreciation from him, maybe there'd be at least readers who would, uh, who would uh, understand uh, and uh, be more appreciative. <laughs> uh, so now I want to say a word before I sit down about uh, having said something about uh, Rebecca and the work we've done about Brian Hare, who knows something about uh, church pronouncements on the economy, having worked with the Roman Catholic bishops in their historic statement uh, of decades ago uh, on the, uh, what was it called, uh, peace and justice for all, or uh, economic justice for all, the, the American Catholic bishops. So he knows something about that and how these things are constructed and, and how they are promulgated. What, the reason I wanted you here in particular, uh, Stephanie, is if you know, Stephanie writes a regular column in Christian Century, which I read, assiduously, and her talent is to see how widely dispersed spirituality is, not just in religious institutions, but in various kinds of human activities and constructs across the board. And I'm trying to stimulate you, Stephanie, if I could, to see the presence of the spiritual, both the negative side, or both the positive side and the negative side, as they're expressed uh, in, in economic uh, institutions. So maybe go forth from here and write a column for the Christian century. <laughs> and if you want to mention this book, that's okay too. <laughs> you can do that. Final statement. Uh, look, I am not a death of God theologian, even for the, for the uh, market God. No, I am not interested in, in uh, the abolition or death of the market. We've had markets first for a very, very long time in human history. I have a, an, another interest, which is to allow the market to be what it really seems to be w well equipped to do, which is to serve other parts, family life, education, other parts of, of the uh, society, other parts of the culture, and not become the dominant value-creating institution of the entire society. In other words, I think that the, when the market is made God, it is miscast. Mm -mm. Miscast in a role that it really isn't suited for. And I'm interested, and in, that's why I call the last chapter in this book, Saving the Soul of the Market. Mm. It's a theological version of reimagining capitalism, I think. <laughs> At least an aspect of capitalism. Uh, and I, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that people will read it with that. Not, this, this is not a... It's not a vindictive book at all. It's, a, it's descriptive of an alternative way of looking at reality, religious, a religious way of reality, but seeing it as a, as a conflictual in many ways, not in all ways, with uh, traditional religions. I'm comforted by, uh, by something that my wife Nina told me once a few years ago when she was writing a book about, she was writing a book about Lenin and about the deification 
near deification of, of Lenin, and she looked into the history of uh, people who are deified after their death. And she reminded me of the, uh, or told me, I didn't know about it at first, of the, uh, uh, the uh, Roman emperor, uh, I think it was uh, Theodosius, who uh, upon his deathbed, no, it was Vespasian, Vespasian. He knew he was dying and he said, oh, I'm dying. Now I suppose I'll have to become a god. <laughs> how, uh, how uninteresting, how, how uh, boring, I guess, for a human being, how uh, overwhelming. The market might be a lot happier if it didn't have to be gone, if it began serving the kind of purposes that it has served so well in so many places before it was escalated uh, unduly. Uh, into the, the position that it is in uh, now. Um, so this is the objective of the, of the uh, book, and I look forward to hearing from my friendly, friendly, friendly colleagues <laughs> as they respond to it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, let me say one other thing before I sit down, which is this. When I, when I met uh, Pope Francis, even though he didn't express his deep appreciation for all the brilliant ideas that I had uh, channeled in his direction. He did say this. He said, I want to bless you, your teaching, and please pass on our, my blessing to your students. Now, I haven't been teaching this semester, so this is my first chance to pass on. <laughs> A genuine apostolic benediction for all of you. Had I thought of it, I would have invited Francis to be a respondent. <laughs> we could have put him up for a night in the Jesuit community. And had I thought of it too, I mean, we feel like we're in church now. We should have taken up a collection. <laughs> so uh, Harvey has already done a wonderful job in um, alluding to our generous respondents who are here tonight, and I'll introduce them only briefly beginning with the closest to home and then the farthest who comes from across the river. <laughs> so Stephanie Paul Sell, uh, well known to so many of us here and a good friend of everybody here. Susan Shawcross Swartz, professor of the practice of Christian studies here at the Divinity School. Her teaching is focused around religion and literature, Christian spirituality, and the practice of ministry. She is the author of numerous articles and books, including the column to which Harvey alluded, uh, but books including Honoring the Body, Meditations on a Christian Practice, The Scope of Our Art, The Vocation of the Theological Teacher, and the commentary already mentioned on the Song of Songs that appeared alongside Harvey's commentary on Lamentations in a book that they shared together. Her most recent project is the book coming out soon, I hope, on Virginia Woolf and Religion, to be published by Penn State University Press. We look forward to a book event in this room for that book. Uh, a little bit further away, but by no means a stranger to the Divinity School, is uh, Father Brian Hare, who is the uh, Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Religion and Public Life in the Kennedy School. Uh, previous to coming to Harvard uh, Business uh, Kennedy School, he had served on the faculty at Georgetown University uh, in 1984 to 1992, and then was here at the Divinity School from 93 to 2001 and served as de facto dean for a number of years during that time as well. 
His research and writing focus on ethics and foreign policy and the role of religion in world politics and American society. His many writings include uh, the encyclical that he worked on, The Economic Justice for All, but also The Moral Measure of War, A Tradition of Continuity and Change, Military Intervention and National Sovereignty, Catholic Catholicism and Democracy, and Social Values in Public Policy, A Contribution from a Religious Tradition. On top of all of this, he somehow manages to have time also to be for the Archdiocese of Boston, the Secretary for Healthcare and Social Services. And our final respondent, who comes from farthest away, Rebecca Henderson, is the John and Natty MacArthur University <coughs> Professor at the University and has an appointment in the Business School in the General Management and Strategy Units. She is also a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Previously, for a number of years, she had been the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management at the Sloan School of MIT, where she ran the strategy group and taught courses in strategy, technology strategy, and sustainability. Her work explores how organizations respond to large-scale technological shifts, most recently in regard to energy and the environment. She also teaches reimagining capitalism in the MBA, MBA program in the business school. And she's published widely in business magazines and journals <coughs> and in journals such as the RAND Journal of Economics, Organization Science, and the Quarterly Journal of Economics. So we have three wonderful discussants for the book. We're very appreciative for them taking the time to be here, and we begin with Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, I grew up with Harvey Cox's books on my parents' shelves and his ideas very much in the in the air and in the living room and around the kitchen table, and I still marvel that I get to be his colleague. So thank you very much. Um, it's an honor. Um, I began reading Harvey Cox's new book uh, during the same week in which Dr. David Dow was dragged off a United Airlines flight by the Chicago Aviation Police. As is now well known, Dr. Dow had committed no crime, was not a suspect in any crime, and had reserved and paid for the seat in which he was sitting. But when he refused to deplane and wait for a later flight so that United could seat its own employees, the police hauled Dr. Dow from his seat and dragged him down the aisle of the aircraft, breaking his nose and leaving him bloody and concussed. The police had sworn to serve and protect, and they did. But the person they served and protected was the corporation, not the human being who had paid that corporation for a service, that of flying him from Chicago to his home in Louisville, Kentucky. This incident is a very apt example of the problem Harvey Cox attempts to describe, analyze, and offer solutions for in his new book, The Market as God. In a sacralized market, a market that functions as a pseudo-religion, the personhood of corporations supersedes the personhood of human beings. When the market stops being the servant of society, but rather its master, when it is seen as an end and not as a means, then the deployment of state power to drag people off of airplanes is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing is that we forget, as Harvey puts it, how unjust and humiliating it is to take from people the resources they need to live and to exact personal gain from their misery. 
The worst thing is that income inequality continues to grow unchecked until society simply breaks apart. Harvey gets the image of the deified, sacralized market, as he said, from Pope Francis, who in his 2013 encyclical, The Joy of the Gospel, critiqued the misplaced faith of defenders of trickle-down economic theories as, quote, a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. A deified market, the Pope insists, has created what he calls a globalization of indifference. Taking the Pope's choice of words to heart, Harvey started reading economic theory and the business page through the lens of religion and found the market, capital M, has its myths of origin, its <coughs> legends of the fall, its doctrines of sin and redemption. The deified market has its priests and its rituals, its saints and its prophets, its forms of evangelization. It has liturgies, a sacred calendar, and sacred spaces. It has esoteric debates about the nature of personhood and its own infallibility. The deified market possesses all of these dimensions of a religion, Harvey has convinced me. What it lacks, though, is room for all of the possibilities that religion holds, all of the ways that religions feel along the edges of human existence, its contingencies, its paradoxes, the ways religious faith knits the known and the unknown, as Thomas Merton once put it, into a living whole. In a deified market, a tragedy like 9-11 spurs the president to urge us to get out and shop rather than consider the implications of our shared human vulnerability. Harvey charts what he calls the long struggle between the God of the Bible who has a bias for the poor and the God of the market. The market has by and large been victorious, he argues, although he traces movements within religion to restore the market capital M to its rightful place as market small m, from Catholic social teachings to Protestant social gospel, from Europe's religious socialism and worker priests to Latin America's liberation theology. I think Harvey's own book um, is a part of this genealogy. Um, although he does not recommend a new economic system, he, he does what I imagine Rebecca Henderson does in her class, Reimagining re Capitalism. He asks us to reimagine capitalism. And he imagines a restoration of the market that is grounded in the first creation story of the book of Genesis, in which God created the world in seven days. Harvey proposes a seven-step plan for a decentralization of the market. Harvey reads the first creation story as an account of God moving from centralized, all-encompassing presence to the multiplicity of light and dark, dry land and oceans, sea monsters and green plants and stars, and ultimately human beings made in God's, Im made in God's image and sharing in God's life. He imagines the market also choosing a kind of decentralization that would set loose human creativity on the problems that the deification of the market has created. Rather than concentrating power and wealth at the top of corporations, there would be more democratic participation throughout the system. And I think this is not a utopian vision for Harvey, but rather an absolute necessity. Even a deified market cannot grow forever. 
and the God of the market is no protection against the catastrophe of ever-widening income inequality. Now, Harvey's book raises many questions for me, three of which I'd like to offer here. First, Harvey notes that the kind of recreation of the market that he imagines has to begin as our own recreation of human beings does with repentance. Mm -hmm. The market needs to confess its sins. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the difficulties we face in the era of Citizens United in which corporations have been granted personhood. When we say the market needs to confess and repent and change, are we falling in line with Citizens United and saying corporations are people too, the market is a person too? Um, are we saying that these larger entities are in some way comparable to persons? Harvey quotes the former acting Attorney General Sally Yates as saying that corporations can only commit crimes through flesh and blood people. What is the relationship between these flesh and blood people and the larger entities that Harvey speaks about? And what does that relationship have to do with transforming those entities? And what might religion have to do with this? Secondly, and relatedly, what is the relationship of the deification of the market to what Martin Luther King Jr. called the ancient hatreds that still threaten to plow our society under? racism, nationalism, xenophobia. Do those hatreds shape a deified market or are they shaped by a deified market? Does a deified market leave them more room to flourish? How, Harvey, do you see that relationship? And finally, I'm interested in something that Harvey touched on in the book and that would probably require another book to explore mo more thoroughly, maybe a book called God as the Market instead of the Market as God. Um, but namely, not only how the market has been made into a religion, but how religion and religious communities have taken on aspects of the market. Um, Harvey talks about some institutions that have done this. The Vatican Bank, for example, which the current pope struggles to reform. On a more local level, he talks about the megachurches that are set up like malls with food courts and shops. But even ordinary, non-mega, congregations, certainly in this country, have been affected by the emphasis on church growth, especially at a time when both mainline and evangelical Christian churches are shrinking. As one HDS graduate put it in his book on how to reinvigorate the mainline churches, we should see the church as, quote, an entrepreneurial enterprise, a new business startup, a small cap, high risk, aggressive growth venture with the minister as CEO overseeing a wide range of programs and services, empowering a group of middle managers to oversee them. And we laugh, but a lot of churches are run like this. Um, and there's no question but that this model has created some thriving religious communities. Um, some new creative stuff has come out of this. But I wonder, Harvey, if you could talk a bit about what is gained and what is potentially lost when we lean on the market for our model for creating and sustaining religious community. Harvey's attention to Pope Francis's economic teachings returned me to the writings of another pope with radical economic ideas, Gregory the Great, Bishop of Rome from 590 until 604. In his book on pastoral care, he admonishes those who actively seize what belongs to others, but he also admonishes those who, because they're not actively oppressing the poor, see themselves as guiltless. 
But we're not guiltless, he says, if we can walk amid what he calls the carnage of our neighbors without changing. As we might say it today, we're not guiltless if we normalize the economy that the market has given us. When we administer necessities to the needy, Gregory says, we give them what is their own, not what is ours. We pay a debt of justice rather than do a work of mercy. That voice, that voice that does not let us off the hook, that reaches us in our complacency, that condemns our ability to walk about in the carnage of our neighbors without reorganizing our society and changing our lives, that voice that tells us that we have badly misunderstood not only our own prosperity but also our works of charity, that voice is never going to come from the market. But I wonder if we continue to shape religious communities according to the market, if it might not come from religion anymore either. Thank you. Well, I want to thank Frank Clooney and for the invitation to be here. It's always good to come back to the Divinity School. And uh, this is a walk down memory lane, I need to tell you, uh, because Harvey and I go back uh, well over 50 years, so we won't admit that in public, but it's okay here in this room. Uh, I need to tell you at least my encounter with him. Uh, when I entered St. John's Seminary across the river uh, 57 years ago, I was much more interested in political science, international relations, and foreign policy than I was in theology. Uh, I had gone to public schools all my life. Uh, I came from a very practicing Catholic family, but we didn't discuss theology over the dinner table. Uh, I went to a Catholic college where the theology, the college was wonderful, the theology was less than inspiring. So when I got to the seminary, uh, I had rather low expectations of theology. The theology got better, but what it didn't do for me was to fill the gap between how theology related to politics, how theology related to the world, how the secular related to the sacral. So two things happened to me. First of all, Father Dick McBrien, who many of you probably new and former uh, chair of the theology department in Notre Dame, Dick McBrien introduced me to John Courtney Murray, the American Jesuit, the principal author of the Declaration on Religious Liberty. And Murray was just uh, a, a light to my path from then till now, because he could connect theology to politics in the high sense, to political philosophy to the relationship of theology and ethics to public policy. He showed it could be done, and so that opened up a whole path. Now the second thing that happened was I read The Secular City, and it just mesmerized me, uh, because this was different than Murray. Any Jesuit here would tell you that John Courtney Murray and Harvey Cox are not the same person. <laughs> there is just no question about that. There's no d diminishment of either side, but you wouldn't want to try to identify one with the other. So Harvey wrote with a kind of verve, and he wrote about how secularity is not opposed to the sacral. 
Indeed, the sacral and the secular are designed to be complementary in a kind of tension that plays out historically. And when it is at its best, not as Stephanie just described, when it isn't at its best, but when it's at its best, the sacral informs the secular. And it does it in such a way that the human person for whom religion and the political and economic order exist to serve, when it does it at its best, then the human person and the human community flourish. So, so Harvey and I go back a long time, and I would never forget how those two influences shaped me. So what I thought I'd do in my remaining nine minutes, I've got it down. Uh, what, I thought I, what I thought I'd do is say a word about the book, then say a word about Pope Francis, who is pervasively present in the book, and how you locate Francis within the wider spectrum of Catholic social thought, and then come back to the book one more time. So the book is written with the same verve, the same power, that I once remembered the secular city about. He has lost none of his fastball over the years, <laughs> even as he writes on a relatively new topic. And what is remarkable about the book in many ways goes back to a point that Murray once made. Murray, in talking about how theologians needed to analyze the secular world, said, you always must understand that the questio facti precedes the questio juris. That is to say, if you don't understand the nature of the secular problem, you never will do good moral analysis, the questio juris. Harvey, in this book, has a remarkable range of footnotes, a remarkable range of how the questio facti is written about by some pretty eminent economists. Now, I understand from my own home at Kennedy School, the way economists can go at each other. So when Harvey says throughout the book, at certain points, the consensus is, I say to myself, I wonder if we announced that at a faculty meeting, whether that would be true. So I need to tell you, there is more to be examined here than to be tested. But I do think that the verve and power of the empirical uh, assessment is then matched by his long life uh, immersement in uh, Christian theology. And so the classical theological names run throughout the text to be related to the more contemporary empirical analysis of economics, domestic and global. The other thing about the book is that I think it, it points toward what I think is at the heart of what Francis is doing. I think Francis is trying to design a practical ecclesiology, not so much a theoretical ecclesiology, the kind of powerful writing that Pope Benedict did and will continue <coughs> to be read for a long after he is dead. But Francis is concerned about shaping the church in this instance, shaping the church in terms of precisely the protection of the human person, the enhancement of human dignity, and the building of a social framework in which solidarity connects people within a country and connects us in a global community. 
So I think in that sense, the intent of Francis is reflected in the book. Turning to Francis himself, I approach Francis by thinking about what the sources of his thought are. And I find three. First, he's a Jesuit. Secondly, he's a Latin American bishop. And thirdly, he is not only a Jesuit and a Latin American bishop, he's a Vatican II bishop. Not that he was at the council, but that he was named to the episcopacy in light of the consequences of the council in the church. Now those three things, I think, are reflected when you then read uh, some of his writing and speaking. Now, Francis speaks in many ways. He probably, in the end, will produce less literature than John Paul II or Benedict, but Francis is not limited to the literature he produces. The speeches that he makes on trips abroad have uh, a significant uh, authoritative role in his vision of what the church could be, should be, and what the world could be and should be. And so he is uh, a person who tries to shape the church as an instrument of justice and peace in a world that is too violent and too unequal. He's chosen three major issues, I think, that correspond to his conception of the role of the church in the world. Religion is a transnational force in a world still governed and will be governed by independent sovereign states. But independent sovereign states today are in tension with transnational actors. Now, a transnational actor has the following characteristics. It's based in one place, present in several places, have a trained core of personnel, a single guiding philosophy, and a sophisticated communication system. That's IBM, Phillips Petroleum, the World Bank, and the Jesuits. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so as the authoritative voice of one of the oldest transnational actors in the world, Francis has chosen three transnational problems to highlight. Immigration, inequality, and the environment. All three of those questions, it is impossible for any single state to solve those problems but for itself. It is just in the nature of things that they are uh, exemplified, uh, the globalized framework within which any economy exists today. So it's, it is possible to talk about a national economy but you can't do it without the context of a globalized international system. And those kind of transnational questions are what he has chosen to focus upon. Now beyond that, I think it is useful to think of, of uh, Francis in his various statements when he goes abroad and in his written statements. There's another dimension of his expression, if you will, that come from the daily homilies uh, that he gives and that are published daily. Popes have always published official documents. Recent popes have traveled and made major speeches, but we didn't used to publish the homilies. 
Now, they're of a different kind, and at least in talking to theologians who deal with things more systematically than I, I think it's hard to give what kind of weight you should give to these different kinds of statements because they don't all cohere in uh, an architecture that is immediately uh, uh, identifiable. So Francis speaks often in different ways. He addresses the transnationality of the world and the transnationality of how should a, a church or a religious tradition that has those transnational characteristics deal with the questions of the day. Now I turn to a second characteristic of Francis's writing. And this is where I think it's important not to simply isolate Francis. Because when he speaks on social issues, and particularly when he causes a bit of an uproar, his usual response is to say, I'm only teaching the social teaching of the church. Well, that's true, but he has his own way of presenting it. Now, his way of presenting it is closer to that of being the preacher than being the scholar. His way of presenting it is uh, designed to capture the public mind through imagery. So he uses images, not unlike some of the ones that, that Harvey has used in the book. That has a certain power about it. It's also got a certain vulnerability about it. Francis makes very broad statements that don't necessarily yield immediate conclusions. And indeed, broad statements that can yield immediate debate, precisely because of the complexity of the issues that he addresses. So it's interesting, I think, to take two questions and look at John Paul II on those questions and Francis on those questions. So the two questions are globalization, the phenomenon of globalization, and the market. Those are two things that appear fairly regularly in Francis's teaching. They also appeared in John Paul II's teaching. My sense is that they talk about those two issues in terms of the normative analysis of them in a way that is similar but not identical. And I think that the difference to some degree is that they're both drawing on the same normative tradition, but Francis is a Latin American bishop. So globalization is a universal phenomenon in the world today. But globalization is seen and experienced in different ways, depending on where you sit in a globalized world. So John Paul II, on both globalization and the market, his way of dealing with it is to say both of these phenomena are human forces. They are not forces of nature that can't be shaped and twisted and developed and constrained, the very thing Harvey talks about in his final chapter. So John Paul II would say that globalization is a process humanly created and can be humanly designed. The market is a human creation with positive uh, characteristics. He identifies the characteristics as it protects the freedom of the individual. It can, uh, pr uh, it can present 
an allocation of resources that is rationally defensible, uh, and it stresses innovation. He then says, the market, however, cannot produce justice. It may produce efficiency, it will not produce justice. So what the market needs and what globalization needs is an architecture around it, a framework of moral principle, political choices, and political judgment in both instances. Harvey makes the point that Francis is not out to do away with the market, and I think that's right. At the same time, he is more suspicious of both the process of globalization and how hard it is to reshape the market than I think John Paul would. The value of Francis is that he speaks for many in the world who are suspicious of these phenomena. The value of John Paul II is he is closer to being a casuist, which means that you go from the architecture to what kind of restraints you need and what kind of ways in which moral principles intersect with complex reality. To come back to Harvey's final chapter, which I think <coughs> is the right conclusion, the market is not to be done away with, but it is also not to be simply abided. It is to be used, framed, articulated within a wider systemic structure of politics. There's not a lot of politics in Harvey's book, surprisingly, but it seems to me the political sector is a broader sector than the economic sector, as it is a broader sector than the legal sector. And so this uh, sort of disciplining of the market that Harvey calls for is when you put it into a wider architecture and framework of moral principle and political decision. That, I think, is another place where Harvey and Francis intersect. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, although I confess at being distinctly nervous. In the first place, I'm nervous for the obvious reason, which is I have no formal training in theology or understanding of uh, religion from a scholarly perspective. But the second reason I'm nervous is for the obvious one, that I'm about to comment on the book of a, a gentleman who wrote his first um, world-changing book when I was three. <laughs> um, and that's... <laughs> That's a, a little daunting, so, uh, so let me see what I can do. Um, let me begin by uh, saying that there are many reasons to enjoy and delight and agree uh, with Harvey's arguments in this book. Um, the first reason to enjoy it is I at least found it immensely funny. Um, it's not written by someone who's too, uh, too sure of themselves or is above seeing, uh, seeing the, the humor in a, a lot of what he's writing. More fundamentally, I agree with uh, Harvey's uh, thesis in two critical respects. The first is that I think his central contention that the market has taken on aspects of religion is certainly correct. That is, there are aspects that have become undiscussable or off-limits, and that the, uh, the view of the market as an eschatology, that is, as a story of what we're doing and why we're doing it, that feels to me exactly right. Let me tell you a story from my own experience to illustrate um, this aspect of fundamentalism. 
Um, I did a PhD in economics, having worked first as an engineer and then for a major consulting company. Uh, working mainly with large firms in northern England and coming to understand the difficulties they were facing in encountering uh, globalization and change. And so when I entered my first year of the economics PhD program and my professors insisted that firms were instantly optimizing point sources that uh, took advantage of all available information and instantly reacted to changes in the world, I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're really not. And it really matters. And so the uh, first paper I ever submitted to an economics journal was entitled Underinvestment and Incompetence <laughs> as Responses to Radical Technical Change. <laughs> now, underinvestment is a well-known phenomena in the economics literature, but if firms are instantly optimizing point sources, they're not incompetent. So you may be amused to know that the first line of the first referee letter I ever got back from a journal editor in economics was, Dear Rebecca, you have written a paper about how the moon is made of green cheese. <laughs> and economists have too little considered the motion of cheesy planetoids. <laughs> so, I mean, this is an example of something that's so deeply taken for granted that we do not question it. Um, so I have strong agreement with that aspect of, of Harvey's book. The second aspect that he and I are in violent agreement on is that the unbalanced market, the market out of control, and this is very much in line, Brian, with how you describe Francis's teaching, is a dangerous thing. Uh, so the class I teach is basically, I call it reimagining, but one could call it reclaiming. Reclaiming a free and fair market, a market in balance where the democratic surround, properly priced, with real um, equality of opportunity, with real investment in social and economic well-being. Um, and the idea that the market that we have now is in many ways not looking like that and is dangerously out of control, in that I'm full agreement with Harvey. I have two nuances, however, that I would love to see Harvey elaborate in his next book if he thinks these are, are worth elaborating. The first is that I think Harvey underplays the power of the market. And I mean for good as well as for ill. I mean, why is, the, if, the, if the market is a religion, why is it such a smashingly successful religion? It's smashingly successful because at least in its early and purer incarnation, it works a treat. I mean, if you look at what's happened in China, if you look at uh, those areas of Africa that are trying desperately to introduce free markets, that would love to have functioning capital systems, real firms, serious job creation. Um, I know I have a PhD in economics and I work at the business school, but one of the reasons I have both is because I believe there's enormous power in this institution for good. And I think understanding that or, or, or acknowledging that is important because, you know, it's not just a false god. <laughs> um, you know, this is an institution that delivered and delivered in spades. And I think that's important when we come to think about how it might be changed or controlled. So it's not simply that this is a false god. There's a lot of, of, of truth and, and, and strength here. 
the, the second aspect that I think, um, you know, and I, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this t- to Harvey, given your, your previous books, Harvey, but I, I think you're underplaying the role of power and politics. You know, why do, why is the market so widely paid attention to? Why is it so strongly embedded? Well, one reason is because ma- it's making a lot of people very, very rich. Now, one of the things I appreciated throughout the book is these parallels behind sort of what I might call degenerate religion and what's going wrong in the market. And you talk a lot about the role of power and money in corrupting um, more classical religious traditions. But I think that's exactly what we're seeing in the market. And one, uh, one indicator of that is many of the people who talk loudest about the virtues of the free market and its strengths exist in sheltered positions in the market heavily dependent on local monopoly or crony capitalism of one kind or another. So um, this intersection between the manipulation of the belief and the fact that we can you know, reap real positions of power and advantage from doing that is, I think, another element of what's going on. And again, I think the reason it's worth paying attention to these two elements is when we come to talk about change, it's not just that it's a religion and we've got to desacralize it. We've got to say, you know, let's critique this. It's also that A, it's done a lot of good, and B, it has a lot of powerful defenders who are gaining greatly from, this, from the status quo. And so that brings me to sort of the last, uh, last point I want to touch on. And again, I feel I'm going out on really thin ice as I say this. But um, I enjoyed uh, Harvey's last chapter, but I thought it was missing a really important aspect, and that was religion. <laughs> um, as I teach reimagining capitalism, I talk about how one might rebalance the market. And I talk about how we could do that. Not that it's just a good idea that someone should do it, because that's kind of easy to say, but like, how might that happen? What would need to happen to destabilize, to uh, delegitimize, to open questions, to really help us to rethink what's going on? And as I teach it, there are two powerful reasons. I don't know if this is right, but here here we go. Two powerful reasons to rethink the market. The first is that it's not going to work. That it is, has betrayed the fundamental principles on which it was originally based. That is, free markets only generate their benefits if everyone has equal information and everything is properly priced. If you make money by throwing carbon dioxide out of the water, and polluting the planet, that's not in line with our original understanding of why the market does well. There's no reason to believe that a market that permits that would give you good options. So it's inherently self-contradictory. Con- self, uh, Secondly, it's, it's really dangerous, and this is the point that you made, Stephanie, which is that untrammeled inequality, accelerated environmental degradation will destroy the very goods that the market was originally designed to produce, that is, prosperity, real equality of opportunity, and flourishing societies. So the first reason that we should sort of move away from this uh, idolatry, unchallenged uh, perception of the current status quo is that it's not working in its own terms. And, by the way, there's a lot of money to be made in fixing it. No, seriously. 
And that's 28 one and a half sessions. Happy to talk more about that. Um, but this, this is a lousy way to make money. It's inconsistent with the founding principles. Um, we really need to turn this around. So that's the first thing I say in the class. The second thing I say is we are very unlikely to do this without invoking the old ideas that humanity has struggled with for thousands of years. That is, the tension between me, myself, now, my greed, my lust, my desire for personal power, and us and later. Mm -hmm. The good of the community, the good of the longer term, the joy and pleasure that is inherent in being part of a wider whole. And as we look at the institutions that have really talked to that tension, well, the faith traditions, the great faith traditions, have to be like number one on that list. And I've never forgotten, and Derek, I hope this doesn't put you on the spot, when I first uh, saw my good friend and, and colleague Derek give a presentation on religion and business. And he said, you know, well, what do religions say about business? And one of his slides is, they, horrible generalization, I'll put my words on this, not yours, Derek, but they all say a focus on yourself and on your immediate self-satisfaction is a deeply unskillful way of living. Mm. Like, it just doesn't work. So I'm a Buddhist myself, so I believe that to be literally true, like it's really unskillful. But the second thing I say in recap is that we need to reclaim that. We need to reclaim that as a dominant, central part of the conversation in the broader society. And like, I don't know how to do that. Um, it's clearly difficult. Uh, Martha Nussbaum thinks we need a secular religion. Maybe we need spirituality that's not religious. Maybe that's a really dangerous road to go down. But I spend a lot of time talking about purpose and transcendental value and what you think you're doing with your life and what will fundamentally give you uh, meaning and happiness. And so, Harvey, I'd love another chapter or another book about how, I'm going to call it traditional understanding of religion, has something to offer to our current predicament. Mm -hmm. That is, how do we make it clear that there are resources in the great faith traditions in a thousand, many thousands of years of thinking on these issues that could provide powerful tools for, uh, for, uh, for changing where we are. But um, may I say that the Pope may not have said this explicitly, but I think it's a fabulous book and well <laughs> worth reading. Thank you. Well, thank you all to our three respondents for such splendid and interesting uh, responses that open up this book so well. We give the author a chance if he would like to say a few words in response. A few words. Just a few. <laughs> I'll count them for you. <laughs> well, yes, the most encouraging thing about these responses is that there are people here who think I still may be able to write a couple more books. <laughs> <laughs> I have my doubts on that uh, myself. But I'm, I'm encouraged to see that there's some, uh, some uh, consensus, I might say, uh, emerging about that. 
No, I can't. <laughs> uh, I can't possibly respond to these marvelous uh, insights and, and, uh, and friendly critiques and appreciative comments. Um, I, I do want to uh, uh, say just this much. There's a whole chapter in the book, which I didn't allude to, about the history of the relationship between biblical religion, Judeo-Christian religion. One could include the other traditions as well, if you wanted to look at the Buddhist or uh, Islamic tradition, on the one hand, and uh, commerce and business on the other. It goes the whole way back in our tradition to the Old Testament, to the limitations on, on uh, User on interest taking, unfair interest taking, not all interest taking, and the recognition, the ingenious recognition on the part of the Hebrew people that the the uh, maldistribution of wealth and privilege tends to build on itself, so that every seventy years you have to have what students a jubilee, a jubilee. Uh, in the Bible itself, not the prophets, but in the laws. The Old Testament, there is mandated every 70 years a radical redistribution of property and wealth, cancellation of debts, and all the rest. Uh, it's right there at the heart of our tradition. And throughout the tradition, there have been periods in which uh, this has been a creative tension. Uh, some of you uh, have mentioned it. Uh, I think Brian did. Uh, think of the American uh, social gospel, the British uh, uh, school of Christian socialism, indeed liberation theology. It comes and goes like that, and, so, and sometimes we're in a period in which religion is, is, uh, is really, in, to some extent, informing uh, other institutions, including the economy. There are other times in which we are being taken over. And I think, I, I'm so grateful, who was it? Stephanie the, yeah, said that, uh, the way religious groups and movements have been sort of pulled in to the orbit of the market god. All you have to do is turn on the television and watch the uh, televangelists uh, who are uh, obviously uh, not, uh, uh, not able to resist the temptation of, of, of marketism. So, uh, okay folks, I'll try to write a few more books. <laughs> uh, and if you all promise to come back in two, three or four years and we'll, we'll, we'll go at this again. But thank you all very much. I'm terribly grateful for all of you for the care for the thoughtfulness of your responses. And I'm ready now, Frank, to hear from the rest of you. Yes. So what we do at this point um, is thank Harvey again. Just for Rebecca, um, like you, I'm also a graduate of the business school. And um, maybe also a little bit from Harvey. Um, is it getting better or worse? Mm -hmm. um, so I think back to when I was at the business school, I won't tell you when. Um, and, you know, uh, we weren't too keen on social entrepreneurship, and I don't think I might saw that dean make a presentation like I saw this dean for the campaign. He have been talking about people in Africa, business school students doing things to save the world. Um, and so it feels to me like there's been some movement, some people from the Kennedy School coming across the river, um, you know, towards actually these higher values. I love the stuff that like Christensen is doing on how to measure your life. And it feels like there's conversations going on in your past that weren't there when I was there. And so is there a influence of religion? Is there a reflection of that from your view? Or am I just like reading into it what I want to see? No, I think there is a very real shift. 
I've been teaching at business schools for more than 30 years now. And the idea that we would pull 300 second year students into a class on reimagining capitalism would, I think, have been unthinkable even 10 years ago. We're fairly sure we could fill four full sections, so that would be 400 students, roughly. And I must stress that mine is not the only class. Many of my colleagues are concerned about these issues. So we have courses on authentic leadership development, on business at the base of the pyramid, on education. So there's enormous interest. I believe this is a reflection of the wider society. Uh, so crisis brings on response, right? And it's fairly evident now that our existing models are, are coming close to their limits. Uh, for me, one leading indicator is I was recently invited to keynote the National Association of Corporate Directors. And I said, you're, you're sure, right? Um, my early research is all on innovation, so you know that I've I'm happy to come and talk about innovation. They said, no, we really want you to come and talk about the social responsibility of business, how we should think about the responsibility of all the leaders. Um, so I, I do think it's a broader motion, uh, movement and not just a business group. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think, uh, to use the words of, of Dickens, it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. In some ways, what we're seeing is more colossalism in the whole field of uh, finance and business economics. Uh, on the other, uh, uh, and, and really rather overt crimes, not just mm -hmm. white collar crimes, but we kind of think of kind of things that Wells Fargo just got away with mm -hmm. briefly, or, just a, or that uh, uh, Bank America. Uh, uh, and, and so on, uh, say nothing of the ExxonMobil, uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I keep meeting people, as, as Rebecca said, who are working in these institutions, who really want to be people who are doing, who are changing things for the better. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them feel a little trapped in the, lo in the logic of these institutions and the, the economy, the kind of undertow that they get swept up in. But I really am hopeful that, uh, that we'll see some changes, and we do see them already here and here, all small, decentralized expressions of an economy that doesn't have to be this colossalist monstrosity with all of the power, uh, cultural power, and religious power concentrated in it. Do you want me to call on people, or I'll do that. Uh, yes, we're back there. Frederick? Uh, yes. Uh, I think my question would be directed to Rebecca. Um, uh, a very brief sketch today of the growth of the economy is economy and sort of central. And then you do remark uh, very briefly, and I want to make sure you find me, but most of your remarks are anthropocentric. And um, just as I understand that Fabi spoke, uh, advocates the re-embedding of the economy in society, it seems to me we need to re-embed society in the larger cosmos of the world and re-sacralize that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the basic economic I was married for more years than I care to share with uh, economists. Not seriously, actually. <laughs> 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 and uh, 
And uh, to me, uh, I resonate totally with but nevertheless, um, the issue, uh, this issue of anthropocentrism and the lack of embedding society, humanity, in a larger cosmos and sacralizing that cosmos. And I must say, I was immensely impressed and surprised by reading Laudato Si, environmental, ecological. Uh, reading what? The uh, encyclical of uh, the Pope on the environment, on the environment. Laudato Si, mm -hmm. where he does just that. Now, at the end, he comes up with a prayer for the people in general, and then a Catholic prayer, and in the people, the prayer for the people in general, he does just that. He resacralizes, it seems to me, or sacralizes, or rediscovers the of the earth and the cosmos. So, I'm wondering how what also Let me respond quickly. Um, when I said it seemed to me really important to enlist the power of the great faith traditions to control and contain the market, it's exactly the kind of issue that you just raised that I meant. I sometimes find myself in public situations doing the following very strange thing, which I'll say, you know, we really need to address global warming. It, um, the burning of fossil fuels has horrible impacts on human health, very anthropocentric, is likely to destabilize the world's climate and uh, lead to widespread famine and drought, very anthropocentric, um, and lead to massive mass migration and, and political instability. So we really need to address it. And by the way, we could make a lot of money doing so. It would be a Keynesian expansion. And so I make this whole argument and at the end, I find myself wanting to say, and sometimes I do say, and of course, destroying the entire creation and crashing half the species in the world so that our children will never see them, that's just wrong, <laughs> right? But um, on what basis do we say it's wrong, right? The reason that in some some, uh, some places I don't say it is we are incredibly anthropocentric. So, this is what I meant when I said we need to enlist other ways of thinking, other ways of remembering who we are and why we are. Because fundamentally, that's why we have to address global warming. It's one of the great moral evils of our time. Yeah. We are imposing untold harm on creation and generations of our children. But, you know, in some rooms, that and 25 cents will get you a cup of coffee. Yeah. So, you know, if we're going to you know, really shift the system, we're going to need, I think, multiple perspectives. Two questions in the back. So you first. Um, as a graduate of both the business school and the divinity school, and a student twice with Harvey Cox, um, I was thinking about an eschatological thing when I took a scholar friend of mine to a 40th reunion from India who had been dislodged from, from her program. So, may I just say, we have a fan right behind yeah. us. Oh. If you could stand and talk a little louder, that would be really okay. great. I said, as a graduate of both the Harvard Business School and the Divinity School. Okay, how many people in the room are graduates of Harvard Business School? Is a little creepy. <laughs> 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 and as a student of Harvey Cox twice, 
Um, I thought I would pass on. I took a, a friend of mine, a, an Indian scholar, to my 40th reunion. She had been dislodged from her PhD program at Brandeis by the recession and was absolutely at ends. And she said afterwards, she said, I have to tell you something. She said, um, uh, in India, you, you have a you've got on a track, and if you get off, you're never going to get back on again. But I walked around there, and I met people who had gone out of business, and they put it back together again. And some had gone out of business twice and put it back together again. And I said, religion is a long thing. I wrote a book of uh, theology, and all my classmates got a copy and all that kind of stuff. But business is short-term, and this kind of resurrection Real resurrection is what people go through who are in business. We're trying to do the very best we can, and sometimes it doesn't work. And as far as the business school is concerned, well, I mean, look at the great good it's done in some way. In my class, uh, I keep talking about, you know, uh, a Skilling, he wrecked Enron, and Wagner, he wrecked GM, and, 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 and O'Brien, he wrecked Merrill Lynch, and, and Bush, he wrecked the United States. We won't talk about Bannon. <laughs> the secretary of my class is a convicted felon who polluted the Caribbean, and I was told by the business school, if I told anybody, they'd throw me off the server. So you see, the larger idea of business of being a regenerative, over this changing, if you don't change, you're dead. There's a lot of resurrection to that. And that, I think that's the biggest policy I can think of. As far as the business school, I love it. I'm just sorry some of your uh, graduates turned out so badly. Bannon, <laughs> what can we do? <laughs> might sound like kind of a silly question, but I hope that uh, something serious might come out of it. I'm wondering if whether a conflict arises, if we take Father Hare's um, suggestion that, that in order to make sure that justice is created out of the market, we need some intervention there, and taking Professor Cox's suggestion seriously that this is more than a metaphor, when uh, Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion. Um, and to maybe kind of highlight that, I'm curious uh, how the holiday that we're celebrating today, Tax Day, fits into the liturgical year. So just kind of the role of the state uh, in, in all of this. Well, I mean, I think your question raises a very good question, and that is to say, I obviously don't doubt the power of religion as a potential force for moral value and political change. At the same time, the world is not all religious. And therefore, you, it seems to me, you have to have a way to talk about what you deeply believe religiously in terms that are not religious. Now, this is a whole, Harvey makes the point that in much of Catholic social teaching is not theological. And it is oftentimes not biblical. It is based on a conception that we share a common humanity, a common capacity of reason, and therefore a common capacity to think through the moral implications of what we're doing. So uh, there is some folks who feel we've gone too far in that direction and not invoking the scriptures and theology uh, explicitly enough. I think we need to do both. I think there is an audience that will not respond to religious themes, but will respond to themes about right and wrong, about relationship, about basic value. 
So, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, as part of my life, I've spent a fair amount of time before congressional committees. Mm -hmm. And you, to be honest, you can't go into a congressional committee and say, thus say it for more. You can do it, you can do it, but they start reading the morning newspaper. <laughs> You've got to find a way to deal with both the deepest religious significance and speak of that. There's got to be another way to speak also about uh, these <coughs> questions so that those who do not share our faith may find our moral wisdom convincing. And that, so I think that your question raises that. You can't say, thus saith the Lord, but you can say, the future matters, you know, as Rebecca was saying. I mean, I think yep, that, okay. that is always what's so puzzling to me, that we don't say more about the future. And as if even people who are polluting that don't seem to care about global warming, they must have children, they must have, you know. But it's not really that puzzling, is yeah. Okay, hands on everyone who exercises every day. <coughs> every Every day, every day. Okay. <laughs> How many of us think we ought to be exercising? <laughs> We're not good at long-term investments. I mean, one reading is this, you know, this is the triumph of greed, short-sighted. But these are human characteristics that have been around for a long time. Encouraging So thanks so much for, for your speech. I was really interested in one thing that really was highlighted for me was, and anyone can respond to this, you know, I heard you, Rebecca, say that we are thinking, you know, there's money to be made in a shift in the market. And what I think of when I hear you say that is, there's money to be made on, on moral conflict, and there's money to be made on aspiring towards a certain value set, which is useful in some ways. One thing that really struck me with what you said, Stephanie, was this idea of creating a debt of justice we're sort of talking about transactions in both of these settings, and then we're talking about very different material gain. And I'd love to hear how that, that is reconciled and the, these sort of different ideas of resources that we might share. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, it seems to me that, Rebecca, what you said about capitalism isn't succeeding on its own terms. There ought to be something in that, that that might be a place where these things meet, where there might be an intersection. Um, and what does it mean for capitalism to succeed on its own terms? Is there something moral to be drawn from that, its own terms? Um, I believe that is, I think capitalism has a very strong normative foundation, which is the belief in prosperity and efficiency and the belief in, in individual freedom. And I sound a bit flip on there's lots of money to be made, but I do believe that a market system imbalance will create more wealth than one that's radically out of balance. Mm -hmm. At the extremes, that's clear, right? Real crony capitalism where a few people control all the resources, it's no way to make money for everyone else. It's also directly contradictory to the underlying normative commitments because it's not genuine prosperity and it's not real freedom of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a way in there but I'm literally talking about the correlations between the health of the institutions that control the market and the health of the overall economy, and those correlations are quite convincing. So in a sense, what the predicament we faced is we've, we've forgotten that you need to embed the market. I mean, the, 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 the people who wrote the Federalist Papers understood that completely. Harvey, <laughs> <laughs> you know. um, did you want to jump in on that? Or? 
<laughs> I agree with so much of this that uh, uh, the, uh, the whole point of the book, in a sense, is the need to re-embed the market in a range of other institutions that can guide, support, criticize uh, the market. So the market doesn't have to do all of this by itself, be the generator of values and views of history and worldviews and all. It's not suited for that, mm -hmm. badly suited, because it produces questionable values. Mm. The market has absolutely no interest in kindness, mm -hmm. no interest in rewarding compassion. It's just not there. That has to come from somewhere else. It isn't to say the market is all wrong, it has to be abolished. It has a useful purpose, but when it is extended and distended, distorted, uh, then it's, it becomes uh, dysfunctional. Uh, I want to say one other word, uh, Francis, if I could, about the, uh, the emerging conversation, which I find very, uh, very uh, encouraging in one respect. Uh, that was why I, the course I was teaching on God and money and some of the, uh, the conversations that Rebecca and I uh, organized between members of the faculty of the, of the Divinity School and of the School of uh, Business to come together and discuss these things. Alas, there was much more interest in this among the business school faculty than among our faculty here at the Divinity School, who didn't seem to be that interested. And I tried to find out, you know, I had to sort of uh, we, 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 we had a place for 15 people at the table. Within a day or so, seven people had signed up from the uh, from the business school, and I had to make a call to some colleagues and say, hey, would you like to have a free meal? The business school. <laughs> 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 Sometimes that happened. So I had to ask myself, why is this? I think part of it is where theology now is. And religious studies, which is a little bit too much oriented toward text, tradition, past, history, and not enough toward those searing and urgent questions that we have to address, uh, that Brian here uh, has mentioned, and, but, uh, that I think we have some of the resources to address. Uh, not to hand down answers to everyone, but to keep this conversation going. So I hope today is an example of how the conversation can continue to go, and I'm, I'm very, very encouraged by, by what happened yeah. today. So we have time for a couple more questions before we break up the formal session. Julia, anything else? Yeah, I mean, you, you slightly slightly answered my question in a way that I was going to put it to Stephanie, that, um, what, what are we going to do about mm -hmm. this, I guess, at least right. one student of Stephanie's here. Um, because I, I do feel a, a concern that there is this widening gap between that world of business and what we're thinking about here, and there's a real negativity around the idea of markets, and there can be a failure to see that actually in, in the developing world, markets are incredibly important, and economic issues are incredibly important. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on what we might do about it. And, um, I mean, I guess we need to perhaps appoint other professors to this, but actually yeah. we need to help people understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think we are um, hoping to find a colleague who will help us think more directly about these kinds of questions. Um, it's interesting why Harvey had to twist arms to come to that dinner. I went to one of those dinners because Harvey twisted my arm. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was, um, and it was really wonderful and interesting. And, and what was it fascinating to me, I think, was how, how interested people in the business school were in religion. Um, I mean, the de Gregory the Great stood of justice that you asked about. I mean, I think it's interesting to bring together these, I, you know, the, the market's never going to give you that. Right. Um, some one of the things religion offers is just these, you know, pushing all the way to the edge 
of its sort of taking its ideas to their logical extension and seeing where that goes when it confronts the markets, when it confronts um, income inequality, et cetera. Um, and it would be great to do more of that, more um, seeing where the edges of each of our conversations lie and if they intersect in any particular way. I'm wondering why I'm not buying what you four are saying. <laughs> and I've heard all four of you several times before, several of you many times before. And it has to do with churches that are basically nice places. And it's one of the instruments that preachers like I use to grow churches. You make them decent and nice. The situation is far nastier than what you are saying and what you're letting on. I also think you're Ford Bear. I've heard you a number of times. You're decent people, maybe unlike me. <laughs> so let me give you one example of how it's really nasty. The way Harvard Business School and Harvard Divinity School are setting this thing up is we are going to do something about the environment. But meantime, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die, but not Americans and not people we know. And the analysis of the global situation goes like that from A to Z. So to hear religion and the market defended by nice people in such clever, intelligent ways, frankly, I'm not buying it. Not buying it. Good people, for them. Better people than myself. What but it's too nice. What is your answer? Well, I think you guys got to get your hands a little dirtier here. You know, that's a yeah. I mean, if you think if you think these two resources are that corrupt, you've got to have something hidden. So, what is your answer to how bad it is? Well, forgive me for saying the gospel, but you know, not enough. Okay, <laughs> not enough. I mean, okay. let's so, be honest. So but you, you're not going to move major institutions simply by saying that. Let, let, let me take a crack. Well, I didn't say, I, 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 I wanted to get real here, Brian. You're, uh, Brian. I, I so so let, me, let me take a crack. Um, I, for complicated reasons, happen to be a good friend with a man called Marshall Gans, who teaches at the Kennedy School. So we're close friends, and Marshall, when I first started down this road, said, you have got to be kidding. I said, you know, powerful elites never give up their power. You know, what, what are you thinking about? The only way out of the deep predicament we face is a broad-based political movement at the roots, organizing, moving forward, inspired <coughs> by social justice and virtue. And all the stuff at the business school, forget. I have another good colleague in the economics department whose name I will not give you for reasons that will become clear, who listened to me do my thing and said, well, it's very interesting, Rebecca, but you are either stupid or corrupt. He's a very smart guy. Well, you know what, Rebecca? You're neither stupid nor corrupt. Well, <laughs> but what he meant, I think, is very important and in line with what you're saying, which is there's no way the system will reform itself. And either you think it will and that's stupid, or you're covering up for people who are making these nice noises. You know, we have these nice courses. We make feel good. People feel good about themselves. We issue sustainability reports with little dancing puppies across green fields. You know, you guys are just you know, corrupt. So here is my deep theory of change. I think we need a broad-based social and political movement. Check. 
odds of getting that one right now low for reasons that we could have a conversation about and the very nasty you you said how do we intersect race and xenophobia in the current conversation so we are hugely hampered by the fact that race and xenophobia make it very hard to build a broad-based movement if you look at what's driven major social change one of the things that's driven major social changes is that the elites have split Mm. The elites have split because a portion of the elite, and remember I'm an economist, sees both that their interest is not being served mm. and they feel there's moral injustice. Mm. And that combination is very powerful. That is, I think, one reading of what happened at the Glorious Revolution, the French Revolution, the American Revolution. What's happening, why did we get significant improvement in South America in many regimes? Not perfect. But part of it is many of the business elites decided the old way of running things, really not working. Let's try this co-determination. If you look at what happened after World War II, the business elites split, and some portion of the elite engaged with, with labor. So having said that, I will also say, I love the expression. Do you know this gentleman? It's a fabulous expression. No way, I'm still not buying it. So let me go one more step. The situation is desperate. Plausibly, what is going to happen is very nasty indeed. I was a specialist, I am a specialist in change in large-scale systems. It's really hard. <laughs> but I think it's possible we could shift. I think it's important that as members of the elites, forgive me, but I think we are, that we have this conversation and open up the space for action. So I, I think, I mean, I. I really second what Harvey's saying. I think having the Divinity School people engaged around these issues really focused on, on the market is unbelievably important. Do I think it's guaranteed to drive change? Absolutely not. Is there a possibility it might? Yes, that I do believe. Sorry, I'm talking too much. I'm a community school alum, I was a staffer for the Hillary Clinton campaign, and a long time ago I ran a business. So this is um, all very much on my mind uh, as I'm thinking about the fact that we've now elected a billionaire over a public servant, um, someone who I read as amoral to immoral um, over a committed Methodist, um, someone who really has embodied like the um, social gospel. Um, so I'm looking at the way that our our culture, we as Americans, left and right, have all contributed to um, the election of our president, who um, whose moral code or you know values we lose by are very um, different from those this past year at the Divinity School. Um, thinking about the ways that. <coughs> Um, some have commented that we're not going to um, be able to understand our politics in red states versus blue states anymore. It's going to be instead um, by our shopping trends. Walmart voters versus Target voters. Um, you can see the way that um, businesses that offer a similar service like Uber and Lyft, um, Uber of course being boycotted because close ties to Trump versus Lyft donating million dollars to the ACLU. We know that these businesses are appealing sometimes um, just to 
personal use as a way of making money off of us. Um, but I do sense that, um, it, as you're doing and you're reimagining capitalism, of course, that there's a real ethical impulse in a lot of um, business leaders. And I'm wondering if, I mean, we hear a lot of critiques of politicians that they're corrupt, they're controlled by businesses. So it sounds like businesses are stepping in uh, to offer some of those moral frames. Um, but I'm not sure that the market can provide a moral framework for itself. So I'm wondering, um, and the majority of uh, evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, but there's, there's a whole mix of um, religious and economic factors. I'm wondering if you have any responsibilities. I didn't quite get the question, though. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Maybe you have something to respond and help me like, sort through all these things. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me just uh, finish with this. Uh, it is a very complicated situation we're looking at. And I am not an optimist, but I'm hopeful. Mm. Right? The difference is, as St. Thomas Aquinas once said, hope is a theological virtue, <coughs> a gift of God. And despite the fact that things look bad or grim, <laughs> or not very optimistic, there are, there's always some cause for, for hope. I went with my two daughters uh, to the women's march, so-called women's march, there was a lot of men there, including me, and I was just lifted by the fact that all of these women, with many with their children and daughters were, were there, they didn't, it wasn't very focused, <coughs> it, was, it was kind of politically uh, naive in a way, but they were supporting each other and saying, no, we're not going to go this way. When they can get it together and begin to vote and organize in a way, uh, we had uh, the, the short order of the Occupy Wall Street movement a few years ago. My only objection to them is they didn't occupy Wall Street. <laughs> they occupied a little park in front of Wall Street. Now, what if they really occupied Wall Street? Uh, and, and lay down in front of the doors for a few years. That might have made more difference. So I remain uh, hopeful, and I, uh, hopeful not just because of the students that we have here, but the people that I meet and, and live with and listen to, and, and the, the kind of sentiment I see among some of your students who I meet, and, and others. I, I think there are possibilities. They have to become political to respond to Brian Hare. He's entirely right. This is not going to happen without uh, a sophisticated political organization and change massively and in a very basic way. But I think it could, and, and, and I'm hopeful that it will happen. Okay, so um, as we finish, you don't have to run from the room, the lights are not going out. There's still things to eat and drink if you want to hang around and talk about these issues some more, uh, please do stay. But I'd just like to close by, I think, sharing what all of us would thank to thank. <coughs> Rebecca and Brian and Stephanie for wonderful responses and probably to make all of it possible.